we have allowed ourselves to become prisoners of right. this nonsense. Groups like CBO and Ken Wharton simply assume that public spending is bad. And as a result, whenever a member of Congress proposes public spending, they show that it's bad for the economy. Well, if you simply assume it's bad, it's no wonder that the results show it's bad. To persuade Americans that investing in themselves is right. bad for the economy and the rest of it, it is just a freaking outrage. From the home offices of Civic Ventures in downtown Seattle, this is Pitchfork Economics with Nick Hanauer, the best place to get the truth about who gets what and why. I'm Nick Hanauer, founder of Civic Ventures. I'm David Goldstein, senior fellow at Civic Ventures. So, Nick, we're recording this podcast the morning after President Biden's first State of the Union speech. I don't know if you got a chance to listen to it, but there was a lot of stuff in there. It was a very uh, pitchfork economics kind of speech, a very civic venture speech. He mentioned building the economy from the bottom up and the middle out twice. I know. Twice. He called for, for a $15 minimum wage. It was a very good night for us and and the work uh, you and the rest of us have done over the years. Uh, but one of the things that struck out for me is that he started, the president started taking a lot of the programs that were in his Build Back Better and kind of pulling them out separately. Uh, things like um, uh, daycare and uh, universal preschool. And of course, one of the reasons why he's doing this is We haven't been able to pass Build Back Better because uh, senators like Manchin and Sinema say they're way too expensive. It's like $3 trillion over 10 years. And where did they get that number? From the CBO. That's right, the Congressional Budget Office. And today we get to interview an economist uh, named Mark Paul, who's sort of an expert in the structure of the models the CBO uses to score things like daycare and investments in roads and bridges and all the rest of what's in Build Back Better. And um, it's going to be a fascinating conversation. But, you know, I think the headline is that these models that the CBO uses are built on assumptions that lead to certain kinds of answers. And if the assumptions are wrong, then the answers are going to be wrong. And those assumptions were created by people who, frankly, don't want to see investment in roads and bridges and don't want to see investment in human capacity, who want to keep tax rates on corporations low and and the rest of it. It basically a neoliberal construct designed by and for uh, neoliberals to make the rich richer and everybody else poor. So it'll be really interesting to hear his analysis of the CBO and why those models never successfully predict what actually happens. My name is Mark Paul. I'm an economist at the New College of Florida and a fellow at the Berguin Institute at the University of Southern California. I also have a forthcoming book with the University of Chicago Press entitled Freedom is Not Enough, Economic Rights in an Unequal World that will be out next summer. 
So uh, today we're really excited to talk to you about economic models and the assumptions that those models are based on. So what would be helpful, I think, to our listeners is for you to talk about what economic models are and how assumptions connect to those models. So, you know, economic models are essentially an abstraction from reality that tries to help us understand what the effect of a change in the economy would actually mean for economic outcomes. So in other words, if President Biden wants to pass his Build Back Better agenda, what does that actually mean for the economy? And in fact, Congress actually has an official scorekeeper whose job is to estimate this for Congress. It's called the Congressional Budget Office. And they have a whole host of different economic models that they run to estimate the economic and budgetary impacts of proposed legislation. And, you know, I, I like to call them the scorekeepers. They're really the referees here. And they run these economic models that I think are the most important policy models out there. Yet, to tell you the truth, almost nobody understands them. Um, instead, what we see is, you know, uh, outlets like the New York Times and Wall Street Journal running headlines that present the results, you know, let's say, uh, as an example, you know, build back better might add to the deficit, they'll, they'll run that headline, but nobody really gets the assumptions behind them. But as we all know, the devil's really in the details. And I'm excited for this conversation because we're going to be able to dig into some of those details. And when, when you do, you really start to question how valid these models are. Are they actually telling us something helpful? Um, you know, there's a famed British statistician who I always go back to. Uh, George Box, and he famously quipped, you know, all models are wrong, but some are helpful. And I'd go so far as to say that the current models used by groups like the Congressional Budget Office, as well as private entities that also act as scorekeepers in the press, like the Penn Wharton budget model, are not only wrong, but they're not helpful and they're downright misleading to the public. Because what policymakers in the public really want to know is, is this legislation going to improve our lives? And we know the economy is broken. But it's really confusing when we have these models out there saying that, you know, reasonable plans, things like increasing the minimum wage are actually bad for the economy. It leaves us scratching our head and saying, well, well, you know, what's up and what's down? And to understand that, we have to have to dig into those details. There's two separate issues here. One is uh, when we're, uh, you know, doing a cost benefit analysis, our, our definition of benefit is really narrow. It's, uh, you know, what does it do to GDP? What does it do to uh, revenue as opposed to does it increase uh, well-being? And the other is, uh, which you have pointed out, that when it comes actually to just looking at this narrow idea of its impact on the budget, uh, these models are, for lack of a, a better term, I guess they're, the, the, the numbers are pulled out of their ass. Uh, you pointed this out with uh, in terms of uh, public investment versus private investment. I, I explain what the, how the CBO comes up with its numbers there. Yeah, you know, this is, is truly a shame. So what, what we see is that groups like CBO and Penn Wharton simply assume that public spending is bad. And as a result, whenever a member of Congress proposes public spending, they show that it's bad for the economy. Well, if you simply assume it's bad, there's no wonder that the results show it's bad. So let me give you an example. Right. So so public investment is is one of the craziest examples you can find here in the economics literature. What we find is that on average, public investment is at least as productive as private investment and often more so 
In fact, there is this really well-known review that shows that public investment is 50% more productive on average than private investment. So what does the CBO actually assume, right? Do they take this literature into account? Well, no, um, but don't take my word for it, take theirs. The CBO says, and I quote, CBO further estimates that productive federal investment has an average annual rate of return of about 5% or half of the agency's estimate of the average rate of return on private investment, end quote. So in other words, they simply say that government is just terrible at their job and any public investments are largely wasteful. So when you have a senator say, hey, let's invest in America's schools, let's invest in our crumbling infrastructure, it's no wonder that the, the economic impact of these are, are negligible, if not simply negative. We see this both with Democratic and Republican initiatives. As an example, the Trump White House came after CBO when their infrastructure spending got got fairly bad scores. The same thing happened with President Biden's bipartisan infrastructure bill. There again, the CBO said, you know, this is not going to have any positive effect on the economy, despite the fact that our crumbling infrastructure today cost the average American household $3,300 a year in extra costs from sitting in traffic to potholes that damage their cars to a lack of ability to take public transit almost anywhere, at least not nation. I mean, it's amazing how far behind we are. So the, the crux of it is, is if you assume public spending is bad, your numbers are going to say public spending is bad. You know, the, the truth is in the pudding here. I just want to make a clarifying comment uh, for our listeners. When you say economic literature review, you mean actual empirical evidence. I mean empirical evidence that has yeah. been peer, peer reviewed. This yeah. is an interesting right. thing. Neither the Congressional Budget Office nor Penn Wharton, neither of their models have ever been peer reviewed. They do, you know, in, in effect, these groups operate as black boxes right. uh, where they really hide the details from the public rather than function as educators, right? They should be out there telling policymakers, right. hey, these are the limitations of our assumptions. And, and, you know, this is really all the details that are going into, into our analysis so that we can actually understand what's happening and make an educated decision for ourselves. Instead, we're simply left to, in the words of Chuck Grassley, the Republican senator from Iowa, to assume that, quote, CBO is God. Um, and yeah. he even went so far as to say, quote, policy lives and dies by the CBO's word. So, so this is really interesting, right? CBO is supposed to be this nonpartisan group that is the scorekeeper around here, and they don't make policy recommendations. However, if they tell us that something is bad for the economy, that legislation is dead on arrival. Minimum wage, dead on arrival. President Biden's Build Back Better agenda, dead on arrival. You know, we even have members of both parties pointing to CBO scores and saying, you know, the, these investments in America are going to leave the economy worse off, despite, you know, all the evidence pointing to the contrary. Right. It's just maddening that you could conclude, I mean, as Goldie pointed out in a conversation we were having earlier, how magical these round numbers are. Like it's just 50% yeah. less good, right? Like it's just clearly yeah. a number pulled out of somebody's ass. And it is so stunningly biased against what is both true and just plausible. Whenever people bring up government waste, I love to raise uh, the anecdote of Microsoft buying my company, Aquantive, for six and a half billion dollars some years ago. And Aquantive was a super fast growing, super profitable company operating in an incredibly rich and fast growing industry. And within a few years, they had destroyed every 
ounce of value we had created over 10 years and wrote off the whole thing. Wait, wait, Nick, you're telling me that Microsoft didn't get that 10% return that the CBO no, assumes? It's just, it's just ridiculous to believe that private companies who spend just extravagantly on the craziest things often are more effective deployers of capital than, uh, you know, building roads or infrastructure or investing in R&D in the way that the federal government does. That's exactly right. But this is the crazy thing about it is that they assume this hard trade-off exists. In other words, if we spend money to invest in the public to improve people's lives, they assume that that takes money away from private companies. Yeah. But we know that's exactly not how the economy works. Right. So here again, we have this, you know, yet another fallacious assumption built in that just, you know, artificially creates these hard trade-offs that just that don't you exist cannot in the real do world. both. That exactly. you cannot do both. It's exactly. nuts. Uh, another crazy assumption baked into all of this is the time scale, isn't it? A 10-year window where all of the costs are accounted for over those 10 years. And depending on the investment, very few of the benefits. Well, see, this is an interesting thing. You know, here, I, I do want to give CBO a little slack. CBO is created by Congress. And Congress, you know, largely writes the rules that CBO has to operate through. And Congress essentially demands a 10-year estimate. And truth be told, that's very hard, right? Um, the economy is large, the economy is complex, and yet Congress is sitting there asking CBO to provide them with a firm budget estimate. I really wish that both you know, CBO and, and Penn Wharton would do a better job providing a range, a range of estimates rather than a single number, given how much economic uncertainty there is. But that's not what we have. The second thing that I think we should focus in on here, you all brought up costs and benefits earlier, right? Well, in general, these models only focus on the cost and really leave the benefits completely to the side. Thinking about climate change, uh, I think is, is you know, perhaps the, uh, a case in point. Again, going back to President Biden's Build Back Better, just because it you know, has, has been uh, dominating the news cycles recently. When they score this, when they score this legislation, they assume two things. First, they assume that business as usual can continue. We know that given where we are with the climate crisis, you know, business as usual is simply not an option. That's gonna to lead to three, four degrees of warming that will absolutely obliterate the economy, right? A stable climate underpins our livelihoods and underpins the entire economy. Yet they just assume that away for a second. Second, they assume away any of the actual benefits from reducing carbon emissions. Right now, a quarter of a million Americans die every year from the air pollution associated with burning fossil fuels. But again, all those benefits just assumed away. So it's no wonder we see um, you know, uh, these scores showing that public investment is a bad idea if all you do is tally up the cost and forget about that other side of the equation, the benefit side. So here too, we just see time and time again that the cars are just stacked in the wrong direction. They're not actually providing us with, with truthful information so that we can make good decisions on how to improve economic opportunity and outcomes here in America. Uh, on, on those health outcomes, actually, I, I know the C, CBO actually goes even further. They, they estimate that, that early deaths uh, reduce budgetary expenses. It reduces expenses on Medicare and, uh, and Social Security. So that's a net positive for the budget. That, that's if, exactly if, right. If yep. climate change kills people, it, you know, it reduces costs. Yeah. You know, it's, 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 and this leads us to a question of, you know, what do we do? Can we improve these models or do we burn, burn it down? I mean, 
The U.S. is a total outlier. No other agency in any other country has nearly the type of power that the CBO has. But, but here's the thing. CBO actually statutorily has, has no decision-making power. But the amount of sway they hold on the Hill is really unparalleled. I mean, they are um, you know, the, the high priests on the Hill, so to say. So what do you think? I mean, you didn't answer your own question, which is, should we improve them or should we burn it all down? Yeah, it's a hard one. And for me, I don't think it's an either or. I mean, I think, first of all, we need to dethrone these models and put them in their place. Yeah. Um, you know, th these should not rule our decision making process when it comes to legislation. Um, so we need to, to really make them secondary to the democratic process. I mean, there's no reason that a completely wonky, wrong economic model that nobody understands should hold our democracy hostage. That's the first thing. But then the second thing is there's no question we can improve these models. I mean, they really just ignore the past 20 years of, of economic research. You know, minimum wage is a, a great example. I mean, fantastic work by the economist Aaron Dubay and others has shown that increasing the minimum wage doesn't lead to job loss, yet they simply assume it does. If we change yeah. the assumptions, we get different outcomes. So we should yeah. be working on changing the assumptions to be in line with what we know about the economy in the 21st century. And these models are just based on trickle-down economics, which has been thoroughly debunked at this point. Now, the same thing goes for taxation. I mean, these models assume any form of progressive taxation is terrible for the economy. The worst offenders being things like taxes on the extremely wealthy, because those are supposedly the only job creators in society, and taxes on corporations, which are the, the most effective institutions at spending capital, which, of course, as you just told us, that's just you know, absolute nonsense. Yeah. To give you one example of how kind of crazy these models are, these models have one representative person in the entire model. So not only are they just like, you know, just completely out of line with reality, but they can't tell us anything about some of the things we care most deeply about, like inequality, because inequality just doesn't exist in the model. We assume it away. Yeah. But just to underscore that point, these models have one perfectly rational, perfectly selfish representative agent that the whole thing is based on, which is just completely nuts. You know, I've got a PhD in economics. I've thought a lot about rational individuals and I can say I, for better or worse, I am not a rational individual, nor is anybody I know, you know, yeah. in, in the economic sense, right? This is just not how, how the real world operates. So, so we need to change these models and we need to update them. Market power is a great example. You know, we know companies like Amazon hold tremendous power over workers. You know, they can pay them poverty wages. Uh, same thing with companies like Walmart. But again, these are all assumed away in the model. Climate yeah. change assumed away in the model. Inequality assumed away in the model. So if we actually bring some of these key features of the modern economy into these models, I think we can improve them. I think we can make them useful. But I also think, as I said earlier, that we need to really dethrone them. There's no reason that, that they should put, place golden handcuffs on policymakers the way they do today. What's fascinating is I understand in some cases they're, you know, these are guesstimates. They're, these are difficult numbers to come up with, difficult things to model. They don't have the data. In other cases, my God, there's decades of empirical evidence telling them that they're wrong and they still don't modify their, their models. So it, one of the ones, uh, classic ones, is that, that the CBO assumes that, that deficit-financed federal investment automatically raises interest rates you know, because it cr and crowds out private investment, even though there's no evidence of that over the past 30 years. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, that's a, a huge example here. And, and 
what we see in reality is that you know public spending doesn't crowd out private investment. Public spending crowds in private investment, right? One hundred percent. Yeah, public spending puts money into workers' hands, and what do workers do? They go out and spend that money. What do businesses do in response? They hire more workers and actually invest. Um, so CBO just had the relationship totally backwards here, and it's it's deeply unfortunate that you know the the citadel of of CBO and Penn Wharton seemed seemed so uh, you know determined to you know stay in 1960s economic you know kind of University of Chicago world of economics. Yeah, and, and I will say you know Penn Wharton is an easy, uh, substantially worse offender here than CBO is. You know whenever they assume various um, values in the model, kind of what we call parameter values. Penn Wharton always goes as far right kind of as you can, whereas CBO, you know, definitely is on the wrong side of the majority of these assumptions we're talking about. But they're not as as you know radically out of right field as, as Penn Wharton. But we see people uh, like the current director of the Congressional Budget Office, uh, Philip Swagel. I mean, he came from the American Enterprise Institute, one of the most uh. deeply conservative and in, in, I mean, really radical institutions yeah. out there. Yet even Democrats don't seem interested in replacing him. I mean, Nancy Pelosi has the power to change him. He's a Trump appointee. And you know, he has a tremendous amount of control over what CBO does with these models and how they construct them. Yet for some reason, we see bipartisan buy-in here to continue uh, the CBO's business as usual, which essentially dictates um, you know, continued emphasis on deficit reduction, uh, well-being of Americans be damned. Yeah, interesting. So I don't mean to put you on the spot, but if you had to list the five most egregiously wrong or for whatever egregiously wrong assumptions baked into the CBO model, what do you think those are? Is that a fair question? That's a great question and a, a hard one to answer because you know it depends on it depends on what we're evaluating, right? Yeah. So you know, on some types of legislation, you know, various assumptions are more important, and it changes depending on on the legislation we're looking at. But in general, first of all, I think the most egregious thing that they do is just a complete and utter lack of transparency to go out there and say this is what's going to happen to the economy with such certainty and without really informing the users of this model, which are you know, folks like you and I, but also policymakers with major decision-making power, as well as the, the economic press. I think that's just a, a complete travesty. Um, in terms of the actual assumptions, you know, some of these we already hit on, but it's things like the really minuscule positive effect of public investment. I mean, in, in Penn Wharton, they go so far as to say that public investment is akin to, to throwing money into the ocean. I mean, this is just absolutely outrageous and really hamstrings legislatures from ever building the 21st century economy that we, we direly need. I think the second one is thinking about taxes on corporations and high-income individuals. I mean, they just say that these are implausibly contractionary. Any taxes on, on corporations is bad, where in fact, we know, especially given the prevalence of market power, that taxes on corporations can actually improve economic outcomes because taxes on profits are not the same as taxes on investments. In other words, increasing corporate taxes is simply going to help have a more level playing field for corporate America. Yeah. And in fact, I would um, add high corporate tax rates are one of the biggest incentives corporations have to make investments because those investments effectively hide profits. Exactly. Exactly. Right. And, so and that's when, why we're... When corporate taxes were very high, investments were very high because that's how you 
shielded your profits from tax. As soon as uh, tax rates on corporations dropped, corporations stopped making investments because it became easier and easier to just take the money out of the company and pad the pockets of either shareholders or executives. Exactly. We don't have an economy that, that prioritizes or rewards companies creating jobs and investing in America. We have an economy that rewards payouts to shareholders and CEOs. And, and so we can change the rules of the game. But the problem is, is these models tell us the current rules are the best world we can possibly hope for. But just you know, look around I'm in San Francisco right now, and I can tell you walking around downtown San Francisco, this is not a world that I would ever choose to, to build or live in. One of the other ones, and this really gets to me, is they essentially, essentially assume that transfers to low-income people reduce labor supply and economic activity. Okay, so that's some, a bunch of econ jargon. Let me, let me explain what that means. In Biden's Build Back Better agenda, for example, they wanted to invest in low-income housing. These models assume that if you give low-income, you know, if, if you invest in low-income housing and make it cheaper for low-income people simply to afford a place to live, which we know that almost half of Americans can't afford their homes today, they're going to work less. I mean, how can you assume something like that if you've ever yeah. talked to an average person? I mean, right. if you're homeless, you're not productive. If you're worried about paying the rent every month and losing sleep over it, as, as so many Americans are, you're not going to be able to work at your top game. Housing insecurity is just a fundamental human need. But here are these models telling us that if we provide people with housing security, they're going to work less. I mean, come on. Whereas we assume that if you if you pay rich people more, they work more. That's yes. that's why we don't want to that's raise right. their taxes. Yes, if, exactly. They'll just stop being, you know, they'll stop working if we tax if, if we tax Nick too much, they'll just stop working. Yeah, it, it is fascinating. <laughs> One of my favorite things about trickle-down economics is, you know, how rich people need incentives, positive incentives, and poor people need negative incentives. <laughs> Oh yeah, it's been, it's so <laughs> egregious in, in, in these models. But but here's another crazy thing: they assume that people's wages are equal to how productive they are, and and that's why taxes on the rich are so um, bad for the economy in their world. If you tax the rich, you're taxing the most productive people in society. But that's simply not not the case. Yeah. And and groups like Penn Wharton go a step further, and I would say are downright racist in their assumption. They assume by definition that immigrant workers are less productive than domestic American workers. I mean, talk about racism baked into an economic model. It's, it's really, really just egregious stuff out there. Huh. If, if anything, we know it's the opposite. I, I, immigrants are a, a greater source of innovation. They file more patents. They start more companies. Uh, they and their children, it's, uh, yeah, there's a lot of evidence that shows that. Yeah. So, Mark, if you were if you were in charge, this is the uh, benevolent dictator question we always ask. What would you do? Well, I'd start off start off by replacing the head of the CBO tomorrow. <laughs> um, you know, there, there's just no reason why we should have somebody uh, like Philip Swagel uh, in, in this type of position with the power he has. Then I'd work to bring in some of our leading economists in this space, people like Aaron Dubay, people like the Nobel Prize winner Joe Stiglitz and others to help us rethink how we structure these models and to work on reforming them to better encapsulate um, the 21st century economy and to help us build a model that actually tells us something meaningful about how to create a healthier and more inclusive. And then I'd work with Congress to uh, make all of this far, far more transparent and also to put right in the mission of the CBO to actually educate 
um, policymakers and journalists about the model's limitations and about what the model you know, is actually doing here. The other thing I would do is pass a number of bills that have actually already been introduced by Congress to adjust what the CBO does. So as one example, uh, Representative Barbara Lee called for the CBO to start scoring um, the impact of the government's legislative action on poverty reduction. Right now, groups like the CBO and Penn Wharton just tell us nothing about what legislation means for people across income distribution. Right. Uh, you know, some legislation is going to benefit the bottom 90% of Americans, but maybe it'll make the top 10% worse off. And in, in turn, they assume that this is a bad idea. Well, I think that, you know, that's just absolute bananas. We, you know, right. we, we need to throw out a simple emphasis on just GDP and instead really emphasize on the distributional implications, right. especially for the bottom half of Americans. Mark, do we need a cultural change too? Because even even good models are just models. And so we we need Congress and, and, and the press to stop treating it like it's God, regardless how good its models are. Yeah. And, and unfortunately, there's bipartisan buy-in to the continuation of status quo right now. I mean, we see folks like Nancy Pelosi continuing to embrace PAYGO in Congress. And, and this is hugely detrimental um, if we ever actually want to engage in, in passing, you know, meaningful progressive legislation that actually, you know, provides employment and provides more unionized jobs and, and provides thing, basic things like, you know, pre-K. Um, I mean, it's just crazy how, how little investment we have in our education system today. So we do need to, to change how people think about and use these models. And, and that really means dethroning them. There's just no reason they should have the power that they have today. That's great. But, but keep in mind, Congress gives them that power and Congress can take that away. Right. So one final question. Why do you do this work? You know, I went to culinary school out of high school. I loved cooking. And I worked for years on the line in restaurants, seeing immigrants, you know, busting their ass every day. And despite showing up to work every day, they were still making $9 an hour. And none of us could actually afford to eat the food we cooked. And that just never sat right with me. So I started studying economics and thinking about how can we rewrite the rules of this game we call the economy so that people can, can just earn a decent living, can get the education they want, can have, you know, a, a comfortable home to go to at the end of the day. Um, so, so that's really what motivated me, just a, a this deep desire for, for a more just, equitable, and simply fair economy. And most of us want the same things. We want to send our kids to good schools. We want to you know, come home to a, a comfortable house. We want to avert the climate crisis. But unfortunately, economics just keeps getting in our way. So I'm, I'm here you know, dedicating my life's work to, to reform how we do economics and, and hopefully work towards um, a better society that, that we desperately need. Uh, that's a fantastic answer. Thank you very much for being with us. This is a terrific interview and really uh, super, super informative. Thanks so much for having me. It's been a lot of fun. So Goldie, that was a fascinating conversation. And I just have to admit that my blood pressure went up <laughs> throughout the conversation because it just makes me so mad. It just makes me so mad that we have allowed ourselves to become prisoners of right. this nonsense, that we have allowed these bullshit assumptions to guide our policymaking process and to influence the narratives that the media creates and to 
persuade Americans that investing in themselves is right. bad for the economy and the rest of it. It is just a freaking outrage. And, and we've been here before, Nick, because yeah. we went through this a couple of years ago when, CB, yeah. when CBO scored a, a minimum wage hike and said it would cost like a minimum of like love like 500,000 jobs could cost 1.5 million jobs when in fact all of the empirical evidence out there over the past 25 30 years tells you that that's just not true it never happens yeah. and yet that's what their models say so that's you know right. we can't we can't do a 15 yeah. minimum wage because that's a job killer when you actually get into it when you look at all the ways the cbo operates in these estimates the fact that it bizarrely assumes that public investment produces half the returns of private investment. The, the fact that it assumes that uh, federal investments crowd out private investments and that deficit financing always raises interest rates when there's all the empirical evidence showing that's not true, yeah. that it assumes it assumes that raising taxes on corporations and rich people like you uh, reduces in private investment, uh, reduces employment, reduces tax revenues. Um, yeah. When in fact, oh, there so are crazy. decades of research showing absolutely no correlation between top marginal tax rates, uh, individual or corporate, and any of these economic indicators. In fact, if there's any correlation, it's the opposite, that when taxes are higher, the economy grows faster and productivity grows faster. The fact that, and this is the one that actually still gets me the most, the fact that they use a 10-year window, and I understand that's because Congress says use a 10-year window, but they use a 10-year window in which all of the costs of the investment are accounted for, yet because we're investing in people and in infrastructure that lasts for a lifetime, almost none of the benefits. And yeah. there's a great example. I was looking up the... Um, uh, I can't remember what it was, the Roosevelt Institute or the Center for Equitable Growth. They were talking about uh, universal preschool. Last night in the State of the Union address, uh, President Biden uh, advocated for universal preschool for all three and four-year-olds. And in the Build Back Better plan, CBO estimated a 10-year cost of $200 billion uh, for that. That's the outlay. By the 10th year, they're only getting back 68 cents on the dollar. And all of those returns, by the way, are from, you know, opening up preschools and hiring teachers. That's where they see, you know, you'll get some economic growth from that. What it doesn't account for is the benefits to the children that every study shows that high quality preschool uh, increases the child's productivity. You've got lower rates of dropouts, lower rates of teen pregnancy, higher home ownership, higher car ownership, uh, lower levels of debt, higher incomes over the course of these children's lives. That th This doesn't just pay off uh, 20, 30, 40 years into the future, but throughout the entire lifetime of the children that go through these programs. And if you actually estimate even just to the budget, it starts to pay off in 15 years. In the 15th year, you actually see lower costs than the money you put in. By the 15th year, it's costing you less. By the year 35, 
just in the budget, it's like a dollar fifty back for every dollar you put in. But when you look at the total societal benefits, it's like ten times that. Yeah. But the CBO can never account for that because they're only looking at what it costs over the first ten years, and you never look at the payoff from investments. Yeah. So the whole thing is ridiculous, and it's so frustrating. It's such an extraordinary self-own. <laughs> You know, right. like I, I just don't know how, as a country, we have allowed this to happen. You know, of course, you know, as, as always, all of this nonsense at the end of the day is a protection racket for the rich. Right. But it is maddening, maddening. And, and, and it's frustrating, Nick, that Democrats, when they're in control of Congress, don't fix this. But yeah. But I've got I, I want to I've got somebody else to criticize here, and that is my my former colleagues in the media. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm a paid propagandist now, not a journalist, but my my fellow former, the, the you know, the the journalists who are still out there. I just want to say to you, stop being rolled. Yeah. Just just stop it already. Yeah. When when the CBO comes out with this and Manchin says, oh, three trillion dollars and you repeat that as if it's true. When has the CBO ever been right? Yeah. Go back and look Never. at their estimates. Never. Look, they, they, their, their estimates of, of future interest rates from government spending always, always, always overestimated. It yeah. never comes true. Yeah. These are models. You know what you should do? You should go back and watch Money Python and the Holy Grail. And that little clip, Camelot, Camelot, Camelot. It's only a model. That's what it is. It's <laughs> only a model. It's not it's so reality. True. It's yeah. a little toy castle on a hill. That's right. You know what? You know what they say, Goldie. Being an economist means never having to say you're sorry. <laughs> anyway, Ugh. well, more to come on that. I think uh, it, it's a really important issue. And thanks to Mark. Great work. And on a related theme, on the next episode of Pitchfork Economics, we'll be talking with uh, journalist Tom Bergen about how economics ruins the economy. Pitchfork Economics is produced by Civic Ventures. If you like the show, make sure to subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Civic Action and Nick Hanauer. Follow our writing on Medium at Civic Skunkworks and peek behind the podcast scenes on Instagram at Pitchfork Economics. As always, from our team at Civic Ventures, thanks for listening. See you next week.